0: Please take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1. This morning we begin uh, the Gospel of Luke. We'll be walking through it uh, not in a consecutive order, but over the next couple of years as we continue the, to finish the Gospel of the Gospel, the book of Romans, which is the Gospel of Romans, uh, we'll be uh, interspersing Luke's Gospel uh, as well. And uh, we begin here in Luke chapter 1. We'll walk our way through the birth narratives as we prepare to, to celebrate the incarnation of our Savior Jesus Christ. We come this morning to Luke's prologue, his introduction to his gospel. His introduction is telling us why it is that he writes this book and its meaning for us. Let's hear God's word Luke chapter 1. Luke writes Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father God, we thank you that in your rich mercy you have sent your son into this world, that we might have life, that we might be saved from sin and death. And Lord, we thank you that you have not left this story, this truth uh, to merely uh, the, the oral passing down of a tradition. But, Lord, you have recorded it for all posterity in the pages of the Scriptures. We thank you that all Scripture is breathed out by you. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. Lord, would you come even now through your Word as we begin our study in the Gospel of Luke? Lord, would you show us Jesus, your Son, that we might live for him, that we might trust in him, that we might glorify him with all that is within us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Many of you have sold a house before. And when you're putting a house on the market, what do you do? Well, you might clean the carpets, you paint the the door frames where your kids have, you know, sort of slapped it every time they've walked by. You uh, may uh, even pl- paint some walls, right? You replace that light bulb that's been out for like the last two years that you've never gotten around to. In fact, you might want to fix the things that, that you've never gotten around to the past several years. You rent a storage unit, you, you take furniture and all that stuff that's lying around so that you can make the house uh, feel bigger. Uh, you, you organize the house, you may even put new furniture in to make it look better than it was. And so you, you all of a sudden start to look around and you're like, why are we moving again? Like this house is pretty nice, right? And why do you do all these things? You do it because as you, as you organize the house, as you, as you order it, as you, as you set it into to right arrangements, you make it look better than it's ever looked before. You are doing this so that the folks who come to look at your house, right, will have the the confidence, the assurance that here is the house for me, right? This is a a great house. It's the perfect house, right? It's it's the house that that I want to live in, right? You don't want them to come and see things in disrepair and to see dilapidation and see things they've they've got to fix before they can get to the things they they want to fix. You want them to have Assurance and confidence and certainty that this is the house we've got to buy. And we intuitively know, don't we, that that order and organization, it it creates assurance, it creates confidence and certainty. And that that principle, we we could could go on and on about all the ways that that principle uh, lays itself out and plays itself out uh, in, in our lives. Well, as we begin our journey through Luke's gospel, this morning, we quickly see that a similar dynamic is at work between order and assurance, even here in this gospel. Now, remember, we're talking about the first century here. In the first century, they didn't have, have books the way that we understand them. They, they wrote on, on scrolls. And these scrolls would have been, of course, rolled up. And so you couldn't sort of flip through a scroll to see what a book was about, to see what the scroll was about. Rather, as you undid that scroll, that, that first column there on the left, that was your chance. That was how you you sort of, that was your book blurb, right? That was the, the back cover dust jacket. This is what this book is going to be about. And so Luke here is As he begins his narrative of of Jesus' life and teaching, he he begins by by telling us his purpose in writing, his reason for writing this story, why we should want to read these words that he has written. He's not just writing for fun. He's not just writing to make the the Roman Times bestseller list. But as you see in verses 3 and 4, he has written an orderly account, right, So that a man named Theophilus and and everyone else who might read his work may have certainty, assurance, confidence concerning what they have been taught about all that God has done for his his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Now we've just been in Romans chapter 8 and we've been talking a lot about assurance, haven't we? confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and so it's it's fitting that as we transition into Luke's gospel, we're, we're continuing that same theme. And it shouldn't surprise us because Luke was Paul's traveling companion. And I'm sure he heard Paul preach many times about the assurance that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so Luke too, as he writes, wants those who read to have certainty to have confidence, confidence about the things that they have been taught. So of what does Luke in this narrative want us to be certain? Right? Of what does he want us to be assured? Well, we see at least four things here that, that, Paul, that Luke wants us to, to know for certain. First, he wants us to know for certain that Jesus Christ is a glorious person. Secondly, he wants us to know for certain that Christianity has historical foundations. Third, he wants us to know for certain that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all sorts of people. And finally, he wants us to know for certain that the scriptures are necessary for our growth as Christians. Let's think about these four things together as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. First, Luke wants us to know for certain that Jesus Christ is a glorious person. As we begin to, to read Luke's gospel, the first thing that we see is that Luke was not the first to tell the story of Jesus. Right, Verses 1 and 2 tell us that there were both oral and literary predecessors to his work. It was the apostles in particular that he's referring to there in verse 2 when he, he speaks of those who from the beginning who were eyewitnesses, ministers of the word. These were the, those who orally handed down the stories about Jesus. But very soon, people began to write those stories down, didn't they? And so he says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, we don't know how many sources Luke used, but but. Certainly Mark had already written his narrative and possibly Matthew had as well. And so John Calvin's observance, uh, his observation is well taken. He says, you know, the reason that Luke gives for writing appears on the surface to be one that should have actually dissuaded him from writing. A lot of people have already written about Jesus. So so Luke, you're saying, hey, a lot of people have already written about Jesus. So, I think I'm going to write about him too. It's like, why do you need to write about him? if a lot of people have already written about him. And so that question is, is raised in our minds, hopefully. Wait a minute, Luke, why do we need another full-length Jesus story, right? Why do we need four Gospels anyway? We might say, knowing that four Gospels eventually were written. Well, let's think about that. First, remember that Luke's Gospel is, is the only Gospel to include a sequel. Right? The, the book of Acts. He wanted to tell the rest of the story, we might say. He wanted to, to talk about how, how Jesus, what he began to do here in his life and ministry, he actually continued to do through the church. In fact, that's how he puts it as you, if you were to turn to Acts chapter one verse one, he says this. He says, "In the first book, O Theophilus, writing to Theophilus again, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach." And so what is Luke doing? In his gospel, but setting forth the glory of Jesus' deeds and his words and the continuity between what he did and what he taught while he was on earth and what he was continuing to do, continuing to teach, even through the church when Luke was writing these words. You see, Luke had something to add to the story, to what had already been written. He, he, had, he, he wants to fill in the gaps. And the same is true of this gospel. As we're going to see as we walk our way through it, much of Luke, even one-third of Luke, by one commentary's math, uh, is, is not included in any other gospel. Right? Luke is giving us things that we don't see in other gospels. And, and, and what, what he's giving us is pointing us to the glory of Jesus and what he has done and what he has taught But maybe the question still arises in your mind, yes, I see that Luke gives us different things, but why do the four Gospels contain the same stories? right? Why did God see fit to have four men tell the same story of Jesus? Well, again, the answer is to display the glory of Jesus' person and the glory of Jesus's work. Jesus was not some flat, two-dimensional character. No, he is a character full of glory, full of majesty. He is the God-man. There's no way that one story would exhaust his glory. And so God, in his providence, gives us four portraits of Jesus. He gives us four different perspectives on his Son. Right. Each gospel writer tells the story of Jesus from a somewhat different angle and, and purpose and, and an audience. Right. Matthew tells the birth story from Joseph's perspective, whereas Luke tells it from Mary's perspective. Right. Matthew writes primarily for the Jews, whereas Mark and Luke write primarily for Gentiles. In some ways, each gospel focuses on a different aspect of who Jesus is because he is so glorious. One story couldn't fill out the the, the bigness, the the majesty of his glory completely. It's like if you've ever uh, picked blueberries at at a big blueberry bush, right? If you just stood on one side of that blueberry bush, I mean, you'd get some blueberries, but you wouldn't get them all, would you? You've got to go all the way around. In fact, you've got to sort of even look underneath to see the blueberries hidden inside the bush. The the, the fullness, the, the glory of that bush is only recognized as you walk all the way around it. As you look at it from, from all the different angles. And that's what God is doing by giving us four Gospels. And that's what Luke is doing here in this Gospel. He is setting forth for us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may even notice though that Luke doesn't once mention Jesus' name in this introduction. He doesn't even mention God in this introduction. And yet we see the glory of God. The glory Of Jesus, even in the way that Luke describes the content of his narrative. You see it there in verse one the things that have been accomplished among us. That verb, accomplished, the sense of it is is being brought to completion, being fulfilled. And if we were to ask, accomplished by whom? Fulfilled by whom? As we read the gospel, we see it's clear that that passive verb is a divine passive. God is the one who accomplishes through Jesus Christ, all things. God is the one who has fulfilled his plan and his purpose through the ministry of Jesus. And so these gospels, in Luke's gospel in particular, is about what God has done in his saving mercy and what he has accomplished through his glorious son, Jesus Christ. His coming was foretold in the Old Testament, even as we saw just now in Isaiah 53, and God has fulfilled it in him. He has accomplished his saving purposes by sending Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, foretold all the way back in Genesis 3.15, but now finally having come to deliver us, to rescue us, to save us from sin and Satan and death. And Luke wants Theophilus, and he wants you to know this, to be certain about the glory Of Jesus, to know that He is a glorious person who has accomplished a glorious salvation for sinners, who has taught the gospel in all of its fullness. Luke wants you to be certain of who Jesus is and what He has done, how God has fulfilled His plan and purpose for salvation through His Son. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this Luke wants you to be certain that Christianity has historical foundations. Now we live in Mississippi, so we know a thing or two about foundations, don't we? We understand how important a foundation is because we, 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 we live over this yazoo clay that courses under the ground and, and causes foundations to, to be all sort of torn up. We understand, right? That the question we have to ask when we're looking to buy a house is how stable, how, 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 how secure and firm is the foundation of this house? Is it built on shifting sand or, or, or moving clay? Well, in this prologue, right, Luke wants to assure you that the foundation of your faith is sure. It is secure. Christianity is not some sort of airy pie-in-the-sky religion, but it is a religion that is grounded and anchored in the facts of history. From the book of Colossians, of course, we learn that Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. But from his gospel, we see clearly that he was also a historian. And these opening words are are written just like any other typical Greek or Roman history would have been written. And What he's doing here, of course, is showing the reader that he has the qualifications for what he has written. He has the qualifications based on the research that he's done and based on the manner in which he has written it. Look at how he puts it in verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke tells us here that he was well acquainted with the story of Jesus. He had followed the events closely or carefully. Now, he wasn't an eyewitness, although he was an eyewitness of the things he writes in, in Acts, much, many of the things there Right. But he wasn't an eyewitness of, of these things in his gospel, but he had investigated it. He had looked closely into the life of, of Jesus, the way an investigative journalist might track down the story through oral interviews and through written sources. It's possible that Luke had spoken to Mary. He tells the story of Mary uh, with such detail in these first two chapters. He certainly had heard from many of the apostles that he met as he traveled with Paul, as he traveled with the other early Christian leaders. He's telling us his research was not superficial. It was meticulous. He had, he had followed everything closely. He investigated it carefully. But, but second notice that he says there in verse 3, he had followed all things. Right? Nothing was left out of his, his scope. All available sources were tapped, he's saying. That that little phrase, for some time past, is is probably better translated from the beginning, referring not to Luke's presence from the beginning, but to his research going all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' story, even before Jesus was born. Luke's gospel, as we'll see, is the most comprehensive of of the four. He wants you to know the whole truth of the whole story. That doesn't mean he included everything he knew. You remember that John in his gospel writes toward the end, there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain all the books. And Luke would say, amen to that. But what he's given to us is material in which he's left no T uncrossed or I undotted. Luke has has followed all things carefully and closely. And then the last thing we see there in verse three is that he's written an orderly account he tells the story, not haphazardly, but with an intentionality. Right? As my mom would say, he, there was a place for everything, and everything was in its place. Can't tell you how many times I heard that growing up. Right? That's what Luke is doing. Right? That's what Luke is doing as he writes this. He's saying the next thing that needed to be said right when it needed to be said. Right? He's, he's telling us this story in consecutive order, but not consecutive order in a, in a chronological sense, right? but in in a a topical and thematic. Certainly there's a broad chronology that he's following to the life of Jesus. But as we read, we'll see that that sometimes he rearranges parts in the story, even geographically, to to tell the story of Jesus in a a way that makes you appreciate all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus has taught. He's giving us an orderly account. All this is to say, as we look at verse three, Luke is a trustworthy author. He is one who has done the research, right? And he knows what he's talking about. And he's writing his history in this orderly way so that Theophilus and so that you will be certain. Certain what? That Christianity has historical foundations. What you've already learned has a firm foundation. It's based on a sound bottom Think about it. For many religions, what, what happened in the past really doesn't matter. It's all about what, what happens now. But for Christianity, what happens in the past matters absolutely. Christianity is a historical religion. Adam and Eve have to be historical figures. They were historical figures. Why? Because it is through Adam that all men sinned and therefore died. And Jesus has come as the second Adam. He has entered space and time to undo what the first Adam did. In time, God called Abraham out of paganism. In time, God rescued his people from Egypt. In time, God set David on the throne. And each time that God did these things, what did he do but enter into covenants with his people, historical agreements And each one of those covenants finds their ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world some 2,000 years ago. History matters, What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, our faith is worthless. Why are we getting up this early on a Sunday morning? if what we are talking about didn't actually happen. And what Luke is saying here is that it did happen. And I've done the research, I've talked to the eyewitnesses, I've I've studied the sources, this is true. And I want you to be certain that it is true. Look, we live in a day, in an age of of fake news, of of misinformation, it's very easy in our culture to become cynical about truth. It's very easy in our culture to say, How can you know? How can you know what to believe, right? When you look at the news, when you listen, when you read, when you watch, you just can't know. And Luke says, no, I want you to know that the things that you've been taught are true. That the gospel of Jesus Christ has historical foundations. Christianity claims to be true. And if you don't believe this truth, it says you are alienated from God. You were under his wrath and curse. And Luke wants you to see that that claim to absolute truth, to be the only truth, has full merit. And so he invites us to listen carefully to the story that he has written. So Luke wants us to be certain that Jesus Christ is a glorious person, that Christianity has historical foundations. But thirdly, he wants us to be certain that the gospel of Jesus is for all sorts of people. As I mentioned, Luke's prologue is a a normal part of the typical Greco-Roman history, right? Which means that that, that Luke is wanting us to not only see the the, the factuality of the things he's writing, but also he's putting his gospel out there for the whole world to read. He's writing in a way that, that every educated, literate person would say, hey, he's writing history. And that means he's writing for the world. He's writing to put this book in the libraries, as it were, so that anybody and everybody might have access to it. And that reality, the fact that Luke writes the way he writes as he starts his gospel and therefore situates his gospel as not just something for Theophilus, but something for the world, right, for public consumption, that foreshadows One of the big points that Luke is going to make in this gospel, that Jesus has come to bring salvation to all sorts of people, right? To bring salvation to the world. There is a universality to Jesus' salvation, not universalism, i.e. that every single person ever is going to be saved. No, the Bible never teaches that. But what it does teach, and what it teaches particularly in Luke's gospel, is that there is a wideness to God's mercy, we are sometimes tempted to be overly narrow. But Luke wants to say, no, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, men and women, old and young, the inner ring and the outcast, the undesirables. Now, as we walk our way through Luke's gospel, we're going to see that he, he focuses particularly and often on the fact that Jesus has come to bring salvation to those who are of low social standing, to those who are uneducated and illiterate, to those who are, are poor, who are irreligious, right, in some combination of all of those things. But don't miss the fact that in this prologue, Luke is addressing most excellent Theophilus. That title tells us that, that this man, Theophilus, was was either some high-ranking Roman official or someone else of of high social standing. He was a Gentile convert to Christianity. He was clearly educated and literate. He could read this book. And he was likely very wealthy. Some even say that he may have been the the financial backer, the patron of Luke's writings. So as we work our way through Luke's gospel and as we again see Luke's focus upon the poor and the outcast, the have-nots, let's not forget that Luke has written this to Theophilus. Even the well-connected, even the well-off, even the well-educated can be saved. And that's good news, isn't it? Especially to Presbyterians, right? Because oftentimes, what do we find in our churches. Unfortunately, we find that almost everybody seems to be educated. That's necessarily a bad thing, but it can be something that we say, well, is the gospel for us too? And we have to say, wait a minute, the gospel's for everybody. One of the fascinating things as you read through this book, you're going to see Jesus eat and drink with sinners, but you're also going to see Jesus eat and drink with Pharisees. You're going to see that Jesus tells a story about a prodigal son who goes out and wastes his father's wealth. But what's the point of that parable at the end of Luke 15? To bring in the Pharisee, to bring in the son who doesn't think he's lost, but really is lost, even though he's in the father's house. The point that I'm trying to make here is that all of us need salvation. All of us. Luke is going to teach us here that through this orderly account, no one is so good. That they are beyond the need of God's grace. And no one is so bad that they're beyond the reach of God's grace. All of us are sinners. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're well-connected or you have no connection at all in the world. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek or a Mississippian or a Louisianian or you're a Yankee or a Southerner, whatever it might be, the gospel is for you. You need the gospel and the gospel has been provided for you. And Luke wants you to be assured of that. He wants you to be certain of that. Anyone can be saved and everyone must be saved only by Jesus. He offers his salvation freely to every single man, woman, boy and girl. God has chosen a people for himself. He has sent his son to die to save a people for himself, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And brothers and sisters, this is good news. Wherever you might find yourself, whoever you might be, wherever you might come from, what blessed news it is to see, even through Theophilus's mention, as this Gentile who happens to be someone well-connected and well-off, what a blessing to see that the salvation that Jesus has accomplished it's for that person too. And as we'll see throughout the gospel, it's for the exact opposite of someone like Theophilus. It's for all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be saved. Well, finally, Luke here wants to see and to be certain that the scriptures are necessary for our growth as Christians. As we saw the the gospel story started out as an oral tradition As the word was preached and taught, delivered by the eyewitnesses, taught to men like Theophilus there in verse four, it mentions that. But quickly began to be written down. And is that a surprise? Christianity grew out of the soil of the faith of Israel. And the faith of Israel was a faith of a book. They had the scriptures. Gentiles were grafted into the one true vine of God's people. That was the Israel of God. And they had a book, they had the scriptures. And so it's no surprise to see that that the Bible came to be, continued to be written with a New Testament. And these scriptures are vital for us. They were vital for Theophilus to have the certainty that Luke wanted him to have. Something had to be written down. Luke knew that memories falter, People die. The people who know all the stories, isn't that why we want to, you know, got to talk to grandmother, talk to grandfather to get all the stories that he knows that we've heard him say? But we've got to write those stories down so that we won't forget them. And so Luke says we've got to write these things down, and that's not an accident. God is the one who, from all all the way back in the days of Moses, when he first established his people as a people, he ensured that there would be written communication, his scriptures are recorded for us, that we might know him, we might know ourselves, we might know his grace. And in case you wonder, did the early church see Luke and his gospel as scripture? All you have to do is go to 1 Timothy chapter five. And in 1 Timothy chapter five, Paul quotes Luke's gospel and he quotes him in the same verse as he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. And Paul says, as the scriptures say, and then he said, let me quote Deuteronomy and let me quote Luke, already, Luke's gospel is viewed as scripture, as the word of God, not just the word of man. And it's this word, this gospel that is necessary for our growth as disciples, for our instruction in what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us, for our knowledge of salvation, for our assurance that we are saved, for our assurance that this story about Jesus is true and it demands everything of us. Now, some of you this morning, you are struggling with doubts about the gospel, doubts about the Bible. Some of you are about to face situations where you will be challenged in your faith. Others of you, you've never heard these stories before. Even if you've grown up in the church, maybe, you've never read through Luke's gospel in its entirety. You're completely ignorant of the gospel story. Some of you are just learning that you're babes in Christ, Maybe you're like Theophilus, who was also like the man named Apollos in the book of Acts, who had been instructed, who had learned some things, but he needed to learn more. He needed his foundation solidified. And look, it's for all of us, the concrete is still wet, right? None of us can say, my concrete is fully set. The foundation is secure. I don't need anything else. I don't need to come to worship anymore. I don't need to hear the preaching anymore. No, the scriptures are necessary for us from beginning of the Christian life all the way to the end. All of us need to read, to study, to remember the scriptures every single day. We need to gather together with the saints on the Lord's day to hear the word of God read and preached. We need to invite others, even as Luke is inviting Theophilus to read, to be assured that with the things I've been taught that they are true. And so you, I encourage you, invite other people to church. We don't often say that, do we? But we ought to. Who have you invited to come and hear the gospel story in the last month or year? Why would you not want others to hear this glorious good news, to be assured in their faith, to be assured that Jesus is a glorious person that Christianity has these historical foundations, that the gospel of Jesus is for all sorts of people, and that the scriptures are most necessary if we are to grow in our knowledge of him and our love for him and our desire to follow him with all that we are. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it's even for the likes of us sinners that we are, no matter what our background Lord, you have given to us a glorious salvation in the glorious person of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us your word. You've written it down. You've recorded it for us so that we might know with confidence, with certainty that the gospel is true, that our salvation is secure in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you've also given to us the visible word, the sacrament of the Lord's table. And so we come now with joy to eat and drink, to commune with Christ. We come in his name, amen.